Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Seth. Good morning. How are we doing? Make sure you have uh, found Psalm 110 in your copy of the scripture, whether that be on your phone or you have an old-fashioned codex. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, you can grab one from around you. There are some under the chairs. And um, make sure you have one. If you don't have one, take that home with you. I want to talk a little bit about Vacation Bible School for a minute. Vacation Bible School is an event we do every year. This year it's toward the end of June. If you're not sure when it is, uh, you can look in your worship folder. Vacation Bible School, uh, you register for Vacation Bible School and online. And as we mentioned, when we opened Vacation Bible School registration, it was filled in eight days. A couple of things you might want to think about is number one. Yeah, I think it was filled before we got the sign up on the building. So the sign at this point might be redundant. Um, some of you might wonder, well, well, why do we fill it? When I was a kid, and then when you get older, you say that a lot. I remember when, no you don't, because the rule is the good old days weren't as good as you remember. I remember when we didn't turn anyone away. One leader had 75 kids in their group. And if you had a 10% return rate at the end of the day, that was good. And we can't do that. One of the primary goals, of course, is safety for the children. We have to limit how many kids are in each of the groups just to make sure all the children are safe. Really important. Kids have a lot of fun. They don't get hurt. And everybody goes home really happy at the end of the day. And to do so, we have to keep the groups to a particular size. And that's the best way to steward ministry opportunities. So I want to mention that because some of you, I saw you going out harumph. Why don't they just stick more kids in the group? Stop harumphing. Well, I know you won't stop harumphing. We, have to keep, we want to keep the kids safe. Second reason we want to limit the size of the groups. We like it when the volunteers who volunteer for Vacation Bible School want to volunteer next year. And if you give them 75 kids, they said, I'm retired. That's what they do. So here's the thing. We have, last time I checked, we got uh, 30, 20 or 30 kids on a waiting list. And if we had eight volunteers, we could add another section, eight volunteers to be group leaders. Group leaders take the kids from session, session to session. They make sure the kids get where they're supposed to be and they get there safely. And we need eight of those leaders and we can get all of the kids off of the wait list. That means in a room this size, we need eight people to volunteer to be group leaders. Are, are eight people going to volunteer? Oh, stop it. <laughs> I, will, I will drop the message and I can stand here until I got eight people standing up here. <laughs> I mean, we can get this done. But I'm going to trust that those of you who are saying, you know what, I got to get, I got to do this. Are we, I'm just being honest, are we really going to let these kids stay on a wait list? I mean, is that really, we're not going to do that. So right now, some of you say, well, I don't really have anything else going on in a week, but I'm not really into VBS. So I just want to share with you my heart. I don't really care what you're into. <laughs> I need you to be moved by the spirit and get the job done. Are we going to, all right, let's get after it. To make sure those kids, I'm looking forward to next week coming down here and saying, well, you got all the kids in VBS registered. So let's, let's do that. All right, Psalm 110. The Lord says, volunteer for VBS. No, I'm kidding. That's terrible. That's <laughs> not what it says. Heresy. Psalm 110. Everyone sees Jesus. Everyone sees Jesus. And we're going to look at three ways we respond to seeing Jesus in Psalm 110. And, and just a quick illustration to kind of help you see how this works. Because if you went to Lake Shasta late last summer, you went to Pond Shasta. And you could see old 
train tunnels and all kinds of things that were down underneath the water we hadn't seen before. And of course, now Lake Shasta is full, which is fantastic. Glad to, glad to hear about that. So if you were to have people stand at various places on Lake Shasta when it's empty, it slowly fills up, okay? And what happens to you depends on where you're standing. If you're standing near the bottom of that empty lake, when it fills up, you're going to be underwater. And so where you're standing in relationship to the water will determine what happens to you. And the person who properly recognizes the water's going to be here, so I'm going to stand there, so that way I don't have to... I don't have to face drowning. That's going to be the right person. Where you stand depends on what happens in the future. Because late last summer when you're standing down by that empty tra train station, it looks like, well, it's dry ground. It's always going to be dry. If you're standing there now, the water's now well over your head. And what Psalm 110 wants us to do is recognize right now we're standing in a certain place, but someday Jesus is coming back. And the way you see Jesus will determine what your future looks like. Everybody sees Jesus, but there's three ways to respond to him from Psalm 110, and one of them puts you in a place of judgment. That's the final one. We'll get to that in a minute. So let's look at the three responses to when we see Jesus, how we can respond to him. So the first three verses, everyone sees Jesus, so one of, the, one of our responses should be and can be, worship him as king. Everyone sees Jesus, verses 1 through 3, worship him as king. Let me read the first three verses, and then we'll give you a little bit of background on King David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. So this psalm was written by King David. And one little piece of background about King David, we talked about it briefly last week, and I just want to remind you of it this week. In the seventh chapter of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 7, that's something you need to write down or commit to memory. That is where David or God made a covenant, a promise to David. And his promise to David was this, your son will sit on your throne, your son will build me a temple. His rule will never end, and your, you will never fail to have a son on the throne of your kingdom. And that's a promise God made to David. He made a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, your son will reign forever, your son will build a temple, and your kingdom will never see an end. That was God's promise to David. So as a result of this passage, everybody in Israel thought, and they thought correctly, that the Messiah would come from David. Because of this promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, everyone in Israel thought, and they, and they were correct on this, the Messiah would come from David. The Messiah, the promised one, the, the anointed one, the Christ, as he's called in the New Testament. Everybody anticipated the Messiah coming from David, and everybody looked forward to the Messiah, because there were lots of deliverers in Israel. Remember, Moses was a great deliverer. Remember, God used Moses to get the people of out, out of Egypt to the promised land. And then God brought Joshua, and Joshua took them into the promised land and conquered their enemies. Then in the book of Judges, they would, the people of Israel would disobey God, and they would be oppressed by enemies, and God would send deliverers, judges, to deliver them from their enemies, including Samson and Ehud, others. I only mentioned him. You can Google him. And so, so God would send these deliverers. And then finally, God sends King David. But God has made a promise to King David, this great deliverer, the Messiah, will one day come. And because of God's promise to David, everybody assumed, and they assumed rightly, that this Messiah would come from the line of David. But the problem is, everybody made a, a bad assumption about what that meant about the Messiah. What it meant was they had an incomplete view of the Messiah. Because if you were the, the father, the son is under, right? So you always, you have King David, and then anybody who comes after him is going to be less than David. Read through your Old Testament, First and Second Kings. All of David's sons who became kings, remember they are always compared to who? Josiah was righteous like King David 
Whereas Rehoboam was, was not righteous, like his father who? King David. So everybody's compared to King David. So everybody assumed when the Messiah comes, he's going to be the son of David, but that's an incomplete view of who the Messiah is. So what do we want to understand about this? The Messiah comes from David, but he is higher than David. He is sitting at God's right, right hand, and he is such a great king that his followers worship him willingly. Look at verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord. Who is writing this psalm? Are you guys, are we good? Are you, you're still thinking about volunteering for VBS, so you're deep in thought. You're like, can I get the time off? Come on, we're moving on. Who wrote this psalm? How do we know David wrote this psalm? It says so. Yeah, but some people don't think so. I think, it, now, but there's a bigger reason why we know David wrote this psalm. Why do we say David wrote the psalm? Jesus said so. We're going to get to it in a minute. But Jesus said, here's a psalm written by David by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if Jesus said David wrote this psalm, who wrote this psalm? David wrote the psalm. Unless you want to argue with Jesus. That's up to you. So David says about Lord. The Lord says to my Lord. And that first Lord there, he's saying the Lord my God. God says to my Lord. Now, if he, he's talking about God, and he's talking about his Lord. So it's like David is observing a conversation between two people. He's observing a conversation between his, the Lord God and his Lord, someone, though, who is still above him. And so what David is doing, he's acknowledging that someone is going to come from him that is above him. That he is going to have from his line a king who is not going to be under King David, but he is going to have from his line a king who is above King David. Where was King David's throne? It was in Jerusalem. Where is this king's throne? It says right there, at the right hand of the Lord God himself. What throne is above that throne? There is none. That is the highest rule there is anywhere, is the throne room of God. And so David is saying, the Lord who will come, the Messiah who will come, the one who will come from me as God promised is going to have his throne, not in Jerusalem, but at the right hand of the throne of God. And, and, and this throne is established for all of time. The, the descriptive words here are powerful and impressive. His enemies will be made a footstool. That's a mockery of your enemy. If your enemy comes in, you could do a number of things. You could enemy, you could incarcerate them, you could torture them, you could kill them, you could uh, insult them, or you could have them kneel down on the ground so you have a place to rest your feet. I mean, isn't that condescending and rude? That's, this king is so powerful that the greatest and most powerful person in all of earth who has ever lived, whoever that might be, he has to kneel down so that this person has a place to prop his feet up. And maybe another king has to sit over here so he has a place to put his coffee. Because when you don't have to get up to get your coffee. And, you gotta, and then a place over here to put his remote. For the, you wouldn't even need a remote. You had another guy who would, you'd say, go change the channel. And he'd say to you, but don't you have a remote? I know, I'm not going to use it. I'm making you go and change the channel manually. And this is what he does. This is what he does. The great, this is how great this king is. He is above all else. Verse 2, look at it briefly. The Lord sends him forth from Zion. Where's Zion? Mount Zion is that part of Jerusalem, the northern, or I should say, the southern part of the city of Jerusalem where King David had his palace and his seat of power was Mount Zion. So what, what he's saying is this king, this powerful king, comes from the, the place of David's power. He is in the line of of David, and he will rule in the midst of his enemies. No matter how many enemies there are and how close they might be in, he has no fear. He's not even worried. This, this is a, a king completely confident in his victorious power. And how do his people respond to this king? Verse 3 tells us how they respond. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, in holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of youth, will be yours. This king's followers are not forced to be followers. When Babylon would invade a, another city, they would crush and destroy everybody they could, and they would uh, have such powerful uh, systems in place that you had two options, follow the Babylonians or 
die. So lots of people followed the king of Babylon. Why? Because they liked being not dead. And all the empires you will look at in the world around us is these have always come. It becomes so poised point of, of force. You will either join the party or you will die. This king, though, doesn't do it that way. Even though he is the most powerful king, his people are grateful and glad to follow him as king and worship him as king. So this is a king who could, if he wanted to, make everybody follow him, but he doesn't. That's what he says. He says, the people offer themselves freely. His followers do so voluntarily. They respond to this great and mighty king with worship. Their, their heroic conquering king, they are glad to follow him because he is, he is their king and they will join him willingly and freely wherever he might be. So everyone sees Jesus. One response has to be worship him as king. Let's look at a couple of verses to show you how this relates to Jesus. Matthew chapter 22 I forgot to mention at the beginning of this, Psalm 110 is the most referenced psalm in the New Testament. Psalm 110 verse 1 is the most quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament. So this psalm is critically important for Christ and his followers. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 41, Jesus was discussing with the Pharisees who the Messiah would be. Jesus had checked all the boxes of being Messiah. Here are a couple of things you have to do to be Messiah. Number one, line of Judah, is Jesus from Judah? Check. Line of David, is, is Jesus that? Check. What else do you have to be? Uh, you have to heal the paralyzed. Jesus do any of that? A few times. You have to heal the blind. How do you do? Good. You have to heal the lepers. Are you checking the boxes in here? Do you have your Messiah checklist out? I mean, I thought you carried that with you. Check. You have to proclaim the good news to the poor. Check. So what it is, the Pharisees acknowledged and understood everything the Old Testament says that the Messiah will be, Jesus is. Everything the, the Old Testament says the Messiah will be, Jesus is. But they had a problem. What was the problem? They didn't like Jesus. They want a new one. This one's broke. Won't do what he's told. So they had to come up with a way, a reason why he's not Messiah. Well, Jesus had the gall to claim to be God in the flesh. See, Jesus was the Messiah and is the Messiah. And his understanding was, because it was biblical, is this. The Messiah is not just the son of David. The Messiah is the son of God, God in the flesh. And the religious leaders had no room for that. No, no, no. No, Jesus, the, the Messiah is the son of David, which means he can't be the son of God. And Jesus, what he's going to do in these verses is going to show him he is the son of David and he's the son of God. Look at what he says. The Pharisees were gathered together. That's a party. Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? That is the Messiah. Whose son is he? So they answer. The son of David. Are they accurate? Are they right? Yes, they are. The Messiah is the son of David. And he says to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him, that is the Messiah, Lord? Pause there. Don't read ahead. You're reading ahead. I can't stop you. So he says a couple of things that they do not disagree with. Number one, who wrote Psalm 110? He says right there, David. They don't argue that point. They don't say later, oh wait, but actually we don't think David wrote that. We think it was written later. They don't say that. So what Jesus does is he, he is saying to them things he knows they believe. He says a couple of things about this psalm. Number one, it's written by David. What is the second thing he says about this psalm the Pharisees do not dispute? That David wrote it by the power of the Holy Spirit. They also didn't argue that point. So Jesus says, now you say the Messiah is the son of David, then how come in Psalm 110, the, one, the psalm that you guys would admit, David wrote, by the power of the Holy Spirit, why did he say that the Messiah is Lord? That's what he says. How was it he, David calls him, that is the Messiah Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies at your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? 
That's the question he asked the, the religious leaders. If David calls him Lord, how is the Messiah also David's son? Now, what's the right answer? David's son is also Lord. So therefore, Jesus isn't crazy to claim to be God. But they can't say that. Why? Because then they'd have to worship Jesus. And they don't want him. They want a new Messiah. And how do we know they didn't want to say that? Because verse 46 tells us what their heart is like. No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Because he showed them their Old Testament said the Messiah is God. And so his claim to be the Son of God as the Messiah is consistent with what they already believed. And they couldn't handle it. And they rejected God as Messiah. Jesus shows that the Messiah does come from David, but he is also the Son of God. Now, the Apostle Peter also picked up on this over in Acts chapter 2, verse 29. This is the end of a sermon he has given. And so I'm going to read a sermon in a sermon. You're welcome. Peter says this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about our patriarch David, that both he died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to, to this day. So Peter says, Captain Obvious, David's dead. There's his grave. Being therefore a prophet, he's referring to David. He, Peter calls David a prophet. And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, pause, where, where did God promise one of his descendants would be on his throne? Come on, man up. What did, what, where was it? Second Samuel 7. I told you to memorize it earlier. <laughs> Come on, you got to read your Bible to read your Bible. Second Samuel 7. He's referring to Second Samuel 7 there. Remember, Dave, God promised David he'd have a descendant on his throne. He foresaw, that verse 31, David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. That's Psalm 16. He refers to it earlier in his sermon. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of all that we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. So Peter makes a very bold claim. The Psalm, Psalm 16, predicted Jesus would rise from the dead. Who saw that happen? Peter, he's standing there with about 250 people who saw this happen. That's what he's doing. Psalm 16 said Jesus was right from the dead. You can ask me or any of the 200 people behind me who saw him and had dinner with him for 40 days. Does that happen? The second thing, Psalm 110 says Jesus will ascend to the right hand of heaven. When did they see that happen? Just happened. They watched it. He went up into the sky. And so all Peter is saying is the Old Testament says this is going to happen and there's a couple hundred people standing here who saw all these things go down. Jesus then is king as the son of David, and he ought to be worshipped. And the response from most of the people listening on that day was, what then should we do? And he said, repent and believe. Trust Jesus and worship him as your king. Peter here shows from Psalm 110 that Jesus is the Messiah since he is raised from the dead and since he is an eyewitness to his ascension to the throne room of God. Everyone sees Jesus. Number one, worship him as king. Let's look at verse 4 of Psalm 110. Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Again, this is one of those verses you don't often see cross-stitched on a pillow. So here in a somewhat unexpected twist for many people, we discover that the Messiah will not only be king. We sort of anticipated that as him being son of David, right? But now we discover the Messiah is also what? He's also a priest. That's a little bit surprising. And so we discover that Jesus is a king who conquers our enemies, but now we also discover that the Messiah is a priest 
because we need someone to intercede for our ongoing rebellion. And this idea of the king and the priest working together isn't a new idea. This is noted in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 9. This isn't on the screen. It's a game day ad. Here's what happened. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 9. And the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles. There's a bunch of names I can't pronounce. Go to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from him silver, gold, and make a crown. And set it on the head of Joshua, the high priest. Did you hear that? Make a crown and set it on whose head? The priest's head. Whose head is supposed to have the crown? Zerubbabel, the king. Not this guy. If you're going to make a crown, you put it on Zerubbabel's head. He's got a fun name. So, but, but, this king, but this crown was not put on the king's head. It was put on the priest's head. Thus says the Lord. Behold the man whose name is the branch. Go to Isaiah, go to Jeremiah, go to Ezekiel. The branch refers to the Messiah. He shall branch out from this place. He shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne. So here we have Zechariah telling us one day the role of priest and the role of king will not be two people. One day the role of priest and king will be one guy. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be more convenient? And what if you could have a king who never lost to his enemies and a priest who never let any sin go unforgiven? Wouldn't that be great? And that's what we have in Messiah. The Messiah doesn't just rule. He intercedes for God's people like a priest who never dies. So let's go back. Uh, Psalm 110 verse 4. Let's understand a little bit. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You can read that story in Genesis 14. Really interesting story. Abraham went and had a great victory over some enemies and he saved Lot. Lot's always needing saving. This guy on my land. So he saves Lot. On his way back, he runs into Melchizedek, the king and priest of Jerusalem. We don't know much about Melchizedek other than he's got a name that's hard to pronounce. And nobody names their kids after this guy. And so this priest was the priest of God Most High. And because Abraham wanted to worship God, he took 10% of what he had won in his battle and gave it to Melchizedek, the priest of the God Most High. And the common understanding of this priest Melchizedek in the Old Testament, all of the, all the priests and the people who understood what Moses was trying to communicate, was Melchizedek stands for an unending priesthood. Because his birth is never recorded and his death is never recorded in the scripture. And so he stands in for, he's a symbol of a priesthood that never ends. And Abraham worshiped God through this priest, Melchizedek. And what the psalmist in Psalm 110 is saying is this Messiah, he will be a priest after the order of Melchizedek. What other kinds of priests could there be? There was one major kind of priest. And it's the priest from who? Not Melchizedek, but from Aaron. Aaron. You didn't know today was going to be Bible Nerd Day, did you? Suck it up, buttercup. We're, just, we're not even halfway through. We haven't even got to Hebrews yet. Okay, here we go. So, you had the Levites. Remember the Levites? The Levites came from Levi, he did genes and then he did also a religion. I'm kidding, that's stupid, that was dumb. I'll disregard that, that was, that was ri ridiculous. Okay, so you've got Levi, but not ever, not, just because you're a Levite doesn't make you a priest. Because not all the Levites were priests. So they, the Levi had a couple of sons. He had Gershom and he had Merari and then he had Kohath. And so the Kohathites had the priests because from Kohath came Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. You have to say that right, Miriam. <laughs> but Moses and Miriam had kids too, but their kids weren't priests, were they? Were Moses' kids priests? No, whose kids were priests? Aaron's kids. So if you were a son of Aaron, you were in line to be a priest. So just being a Levite doesn't make you a priest. You have to be a Levite whose lineage is from Aaron. So that's one kind of priest. You are a priest in the order of Aaron. What happens to all of the priests of Aaron? They die, all of them. 100% mortality rate, some sooner than others, because many of them were terrible people. 
So the Messiah, though, will not be a priest in the order of Aaron because priests in the order of Aaron are sinners and they die. Lousy priests. We don't need that kind of priest. We want a priest that what? Never dies and never sins. And that's the kind of priest the Messiah is. He is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So this priest is a priest that never has a beginning because the Son of God never had a beginning. He has always been and he always will be. And he never has a finish. Why? Because we need a priest that intercedes for us all the way to the very end. We need a priest who can outlive our sin. And that's the kind of priest he is. So this priest is far superior than Aaron or any of his sons ever could be. This priest is better than any priesthood. Let's not take my word for it. Let's look over at Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read six verses. Every high priest chosen from among, among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ, that is the Messiah, did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's from Psalm chapter 2. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So Jesus is a priest, but he's different than the priests of Aaron. He is better. He is able to sympathize with us because he has lived in this world just like we have, hasn't he? The Bible says he has been tempted in every way but without sin. He is sympathetic, but he is also eternal and he is sinless. So since he is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, he is far better than any priest of Aaron would ever be. He is far better than any a person who eventually dies. Let's turn over to Hebrews chapter 7. If you don't know where Hebrews is, it's near the end. And then you can also look at the table of contents. Do you know your Bible has table of contents? Man, use that thing. Some books are hard to find. Obadiah, one page. How are you going to find that thing? Go get the page number. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. 7-11, that's easy to remember. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe. What tribe did Jesus come from? Judah. I think I heard it. I mostly heard. I'm going to assume you said Judah. Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. How many priests came from the tribe of Judah? Zero. They came from Aaron, the tribe of Levi. From what, there, That's end of verse 13. Which no, ha, no one has ever served at the altar. Verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because it's weakness and useless. The law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Jesus is a priest because he can't die, not because he's from Levi. Jesus is a priest because he's indestructible. That makes him the best priest there has ever been. A priest that never sins, and a priest who never dies, and a priest who is kind enough to take the time to intercede for us over and over and over again. There is no better priest, and in fact, there is no other kind of priest that could save us. Because we need a priest who can intercede for us over and over and over again. Why do we need a priest like that? Because we're sinners, 
And we're good at it. And it doesn't seem like we want to quit. I mean, we do, but we just don't. See, you'd want a priest that tells God how great you are. You've got a priest that tells God you are great because he is, because you're not. He intercedes for us over and over and over again. So we see Jesus here in Psalm 110. We can worship him as king. We can receive him as priest by faith. Or there's one third option, that's the end of Psalm 110. What's that? Or we can face him as warrior. That's the final option. We can worship him as king. We can receive him as priest. Or we can reject him and do what? Face him as a warrior. Look at the end of Psalm 110. Psalm 110, beginning in verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. We should not assume because of his kindness that he is disinterested in our response. We should not assume because this great priest is so willing to give up his life for us to make a way for our sin to be forgiven, to lead us as a victorious king, and to allow us to follow him voluntarily and freely, we should not assume he is casually disinterested in our response. That's what Psalm 110 makes very clear. He is not casually disinterested in our response. If we do not accept Jesus as our king and our priest, then we will be opposed to him and face him as a mighty warrior. There is no middle ground with King Jesus. There is no, I'm sort of on the fence with King Jesus. There is either we worship him as king, receive him as priest, or we call him an enemy. That's, the, that's what Psalm 110 explains to us. We look forward here at the end of this to the end of days. See, the Lord is, he is at our right hand and he uses a future tense. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. When is the day of his wrath? It's coming. What day is it? I don't know. I, I don't have that on my Outlook calendar. We do know it's coming, and we do know the Bible describes that as soon. Now, you might be asking, why does he wait? Because he's that nice. He allows plenty of time for all people to respond either favorably to him as king and priest or to reject him and become his enemy. He provides time for us to hear and respond favorably to him in faith. So now we look forward to the time of end. Judgment does come for everyone, the Bible says. Jesus is righteous and Jesus is just. To stand against him today means we will stand in, in, under his judgment on that day. And we will face him as warrior. And he will always have victory. In many ways, this is what the book of Revelation is about. Have you read Revelation? If you uh, are in a set of, maybe you're re reading through the Bible. And every now and then you get to a part of the Bible that's a little bit tough to read. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that out loud, but it is well known that First and Second Chronicles is a tough read. There are a lot of names in there. I think there's a gold crown in heaven for having read First and Second Chronicles. So if you're kind of plowing through your Bible reading this year and you're like, oh boy, this is tough sledding, go over to Revelation, you'll be fine. Just kind of get refreshed. All right, this is exciting. There's dragons, there's horses with snakes for tails. I mean, it's cool. He said, well, this seems a little out of line. I mean, you got Jesus. He loves everybody. He forgives everybody. And then he gets a bit rowdy at the end. What's this all about? Well, let's look at it. Look at Revelation chapter 5. We get a peek into the future. Revelation chapter 5, we are looking at a vision of heaven, the throne room of God. So here is what the apostle John describes as the throne room of God. Here's what he says. I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, that, was God, that is God, a scroll written within it and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So this scroll is the scroll of judgment, the judgment for all who have rejected Jesus. And God is holding this scroll of judgment. I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And John responds, he began to weep loudly. No one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. So, no one could be found, because there's only one person, I won't give it away, but it's Jesus. 
what it means is the only one who can open the scroll is the one who has been offended by the contents of the scroll. So the scroll is the right response for having rejected the Messiah. So the only way the scroll can be opened is if the Messiah opens the scroll because he is the one who has been wronged. He is the one who has been offended by those who have rejected him. And so one of the elders said to him, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered. Who is the lion, the tribe of Judah, the root of David? Right answer, it's always Jesus, we're good. So is the lion, these are all Old Testament references to the Messiah. And between the throne and the four living creatures, I saw among the elders, I saw a what? A lamb, as though it had been slain. So we, first he's called the lion, the tribe of Judah. What's that? He's the king. He's kicking butt and taking names. He's not playing. And now he is what? Now he's the lamb. What is he now? He's the priest. He's offering a sacrifice. And, and, and what is the sacrifice? The Passover lamb. Where did Thomas put his hands when he saw Jesus? Into his side, the lamb that was slain. So here is Jesus, the worthy king. And here is Jesus, the worthy priest. And he has handed the scroll. And this is a scroll of judgment for who? Anyone who would reject this king and this priest. These aren't just people who were naughty, people who didn't vote right, people who didn't go to church enough. That's what you've always wondered. Why is Revelation a, a bit of an overreaction? Isn't that what you imagine? Isn't Revelation a bit of an overreaction? I mean, 100-pound hailstones? I mean, seriously. Really, we're going to turn the whole ocean to blood. I mean, simmer down. And, but it's not an overreaction when you realize who's been offended. The king and the priest who willingly sacrificed himself. That's what it says. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Seven horns, seven eyes. That's power and vision. He knows all. He's more powerful than anybody. The seven spirits of God. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, 24 elders, they all fell down. They each had a harp. They had golden bowls of incense where their prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. I'm tempted here. No, we want, it's a new song. They didn't sing any of the old hymns that day. Didn't say they didn't sing them, but this day is a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on all of the earth. This is Jesus. If you reject him as king, who wants you to come to him willingly and worship his king, if you reject him as your priest, who he willingly sacrifices himself to be your Passover lamb, that you might escape judgment and move into position as a member of the people of God, who will reign with him for all of time. If you reject him as king, you reject him as priest, you receive him as judge, and you will face him as warrior. And that's what Psalms 110 tells us. To reject his grace, mercy, and kindness is to choose his justice and to choose to pay for your sin by yourself. And that's not a place to be. And that's what the psalmist says at Psalms 110 at the end of it. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings, execute judgment. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Look at verse 7. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. This is speaking to the effort Jesus will exert in having victory over all of his enemies. I don't know how to say this. This is the best way I know how to say it. The effort that it will require Jesus to have victory over all of his enemies is the same effort you exert to go for a stroll. That's the description here. He's walking along. Hey, there's a creek. They go get a drink of water. He's fully refreshed. This is not somebody who wears himself out having a victory. This is all of the kings of the nations coming to him. He's strolling along a creek. Doesn't that sound nice? Not Bear Creek. That sounds terrible. <laughs> a nice creek. Well, strolling down a nice creek, it's bubbling along, little fishies. When you get it, want a drink, you lift your hand up to your mouth. And then all the hordes of the world come along. He goes, be gone. Oh, back to the creek. 
I mean, this is, this, is, this is not a fight for him. To face him as warrior seems, we assume that we also are warriors, and we're not. He has total and complete victory with no effort exerted at all. This is the warrior he is. Everyone sees Jesus. You can worship him as king, receive him as priest, or face him as a warrior. Three quick questions I want to pose to you, and then we'll close. We'll be all done. I wanted to, you to think a little, about, but a little bit about Jesus as priest in this way. Is there anybody in your life that can tell you what to do? You might have some people in your life that can tell you what to do. You might have parents who can tell you what to do. You might have a, a, an employer, a boss, who can tell you what to do. You may have a spouse who makes suggestions, and if you're wise, you're being told what to do. You may have governing authorities that tell you what to do. Apparently, you can't talk on a cell phone when you're driving your car. A friend told me. That's a big ticket. Here's a question I would have for you about King Jesus. I would, I just, I'm just trying to let you hear what the Bible says. Is God one of the people in your life that can tell you what to do? There's lots of people in your life that can tell you what to do. Is God one of them? Or do you think God is just sort of like floating out some really nice suggestions for you to mull over? Kings don't float out suggestions, do they? Kings tell you what to do. Now, thankfully, our king wants our heart changed. He wants to transform our heart so we desire the things he desires. That's what we want to have happen, don't we? Okay, but we're not home yet. So sometimes our heart doesn't want the things King Jesus wants. So what we do is we say, well, he suggested it, and when my heart catches up, I'll join him on that party. And what does Jesus say? How about you join me here in obedience and let your heart catch up? Sometimes obedience, we do so with a joyful heart. I can't wait to obey God. And other times we do obedience as an act of worship in opposition to our flesh. And that's something I think we've gotten a little bit loose with nowadays. Is we think King Jesus is making suggestions about love your neighbor as yourself. And making suggestions about hide God's word in our heart, making suggestions about pray without ceasing, and making suggestions about do not forsake the gathering of yourselves together. Like Jesus, is just, here's some good tips for living, and I don't think most kings operate that way, and King Jesus certainly doesn't. So I just wanted to throw that out there. If you didn't like that one, Seth wrote that one. Second one. As a believer, when you sin, notice I didn't say if you sin, as a believer, when you sin, what do you imagine Jesus' response is about you? Do we imagine Jesus is terribly disappointed? Do we imagine Jesus is like, oh my lands, are you serious again? Do we imagine Jesus is just looking for ways to smite us? Do we imagine Jesus is going to say, okay, if you can stop doing that for 10 minutes, I'll listen to your prayers again? We have to, what do we imagine, what do we vision in our own mind Jesus' response is to our sin? And now what I want you to do is have your imagination informed by the truth of the word. And what did the Bible tell us Jesus does in response to our sin? What's it say? He turns to the Father, which is immediately to his left, and says what? Paid for. That's what making intercession means. When you sin... He turns to the Father and says, we're still good. And he, doesn't ha he has to do it more than once because he knows what you're like. And that was the plan the whole time because that's the kind of priest you need. You need a priest who doesn't go into God once or once a year or once a quarter. You need a priest who stands next to God and his full-time job is to do what? Tell God it's covered and you're good to go. That's the kind of priest you have. If that doesn't move your heart to worship this priest, I don't know what will. Because that's what he's like. And you need to have your imagination not informed by what other people have done when you've let them down, because they respond lots of different ways. You need to let the Bible tell you how your priest responds. He turns to the Father and says, it's paid for, and we're, we're going to work on this too by the power of the Spirit. Finally this, and this is for those of us here who don't know Jesus, God gives us plenty of time to know him as king and to know him as priest, but a day will come when we will have to answer to him on our response, and there's no neutral on this. There's either trusting Jesus to forgive us for our sins and receiving him as our king and our priest, 
or we will face him in judgment. And I don't want that for anybody. And I want you in these moments to decide right now what you want that day to be like. Do you want to face him in judgment? Then that's how you're going to roll. But if you don't want to do that, you don't have to. You just simply put your faith in Jesus for forgiveness. And he will wash you clean of all the sins of your past, your present, and your future. Jesus, we thank you that you are our king, that you are our conqueror, you are our warrior. There is nothing coming down the road that you will not have victory over. We confess in our weakness and our frailty, we are filled with doubt and fear. Lord, we pray as we looked at your word this morning that you would fill us with the joy of knowing you are king of kings and Lord of lords, and there is no throne over yours. God, I pray for those of us who are here today who have been uh, filled with the weight of regret and shame and sin, and I pray, God, you would help us to have our eyes open to what you do for us as our priest, that you have made a way for us to stand righteous before the Father. Would you allow us, God, by faith to set aside all of that stuff and allow you to intercede for us and recognize that in Christ we have right relationship with God and it can't get any better. And God, I pray for those who are here who don't know you. I pray in this moment your Holy Spirit might do a work in their heart, that their eyes would be opened for their need for forgiveness, that they might reach out to you in prayer. Lord, please forgive me. I trust Jesus to give me life. I want to face him as my king and my priest, not as a warrior. God, we thank you for Christ and the power of the resurrection. We can't wait till you come home and get us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand up with us as we close with the song?